0: Many years ago at a big family event on my wife's side of the family, I was sat next to a couple who were some distant relations of Shiona and um, I'd never met them before. And to get the conversation going, I asked them the question, where do they live? Oxford came the cheery reply. Well, I just read an article about Oxford in the newspaper about the terrible housing crisis there. So I launched into, isn't it terrible how people can't get anywhere to live in Oxford? I hear it's a terrible situation. And... Why can't the Oxford City Council just get their act together and sort this out? Some slightly frosty looks. Fearlessly, I pressed on. So what do you do in Oxford? I work for the Oxford City Council, came the reply. I gulped. Which department? Housing. Oh, very awkward. The rest of the conversation didn't go particularly well. Well... Why was that? Well, because I didn't know who I was dealing with Um, and so I didn't relate to them properly and in the end I I probably ruined, uh, potentially, a a happy friendship. Who knows? I think he went on to become the MP for Oxford later. A, A classic evangelical jargon is to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But you will never relate to Jesus properly unless you know who you are dealing with. And there's never been a shortage of opinions about who Jesus is. Uh, We found uh, a number in Mark's account that was read to us a bit earlier. Jesus the healer. Jesus the teacher. Jesus the madman. Jesus the the badman, an evil sorcerer. Uh, That's a pretty wide variety of views. And how you view Jesus, of course, will affect how you relate to him. Mark's answer of who Jesus is is found in the very first verse, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is God's appointed king, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is bringing in the kingdom of God that will last forever. And then Mark uh, reports the events that, uh, about the life of Jesus that can provide the evidence of his great authority as a king. You see his authority over people over other teachers, over evil spirits, over sickness, even proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, something which only God can do. And so we're beginning to build a picture of what Mark means when he says that Jesus is the Son of God. Awesome power, unmistakable authority, and in a way that fulfilled lots of ancient promises from their holy scriptures. So how did Israel respond to the arrival of their long-awaited king? Well, there are two main points I want us to consider in this talk. The first is the response of Israel, and the second is the response of Jesus to their response. You could summarize the response of Israel to Jesus with one word rejection. And that experience of rejection seems to happen at a number of levels, rejection from the leaders. Last week, we, we looked at the unfolding conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus in five separate incidents. Jesus just didn't seem to fit into their framework, their religious commitments. They, they felt threatened and troubled by Jesus. His presence somehow seemed to challenge their identity, their position, their, their status, enough that there only seemed to be one solution. In chapter 3, verse 6, it says that the Pharisees and the Herodians the so Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Israel's spiritual leadership, the Pharisees, reject Jesus. Israel's political leadership, the Herodians, reject Jesus. Now I think it would be fair to say that gospel preachers are still not that much appreciated in some churches today and amongst some of the elites in our, in our society before the COVID crisis we saw the city of Edinburgh and Glasgow withdraw previously accepted bookings of those who are going to come and preach the Bible to them, share the good news of Jesus. Now, why is that? Well, because Jesus does not fit into their worldview commitments. And so no platforming is a great way to signal the virtue of those in charge. But as in the time of Jesus, I think we can see that the rejection was really more a feature of prejudice and spiritual blindness. It's interesting that in the first century, they could not deny that Jesus was doing these miracles. Um, they came from Jerusalem and said, it's because he's evil. He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. This, is, of course, is a classic response. Demonize your opponents. And we should be encouraged if, if we become demonized in our culture for our commitment to Christ, that we're, very, uh, we're in good company. How did Jesus respond to this prejudice? With logic. He shows them how illogical their view was by teaching them in a parable. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. A divided kingdom, divided business partnership, divided political party, a divided family will not last very long. And so it's ludicrous to say that Jesus was using demonic power to cast out impure spirits out of people. Why would Satan be opposing himself? But it's not just the leaders who reject Jesus. The crowd rejects Jesus. At first glance, it looks very positive in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples by the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing... Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around the Tyre and Sidon. It appears that Jesus is hugely popular. They come from all points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. You know, the leaders are opposed, but the crowds are drawn. And you can imagine the excitement of the disciples. I mean, this is how God's kingdom is going to be brought about with people power a popular uprising that will shake the seats of power. They dare not get in our way. But before you get too excited by the huge crowds, the description here is quite dark. Look at verse 9, because of the crowds, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. This is a desperate crowd, a crowd that's come from large distances with sick relatives and friends and they want to get healed and they're pushing forward closer and closer to jesus so he can touch them a crowd where people would end up crushing him and, and and crushing other people as they jostle and move closer and closer and so as the crush moves towards jesus he gets into a boat and he moves further away from them you see this healing ministry is clearly not done by medical means it's a spiritual matter And we see that with the reaction of these demon-possessed people who seem to be drawn to Jesus like moths to a flame. Is it mocking worship as they fall down before him, crying out, you are the son of God, or can they not help themselves but acknowledge who he is? Whichever. It was unwanted attention by Jesus. And so he ordered those healed to silence. You know, talk of Uh, of son of god and large crowds could stir up an even greater political reaction from herod antipas in the region that he was in and uh, maybe cause an early intervention that would stop jesus fulfilling his mission Um, do you see that the huge crowd had got the identity of jesus wrong despite seeing people fall down before him and, and testify to his true identity the blindness of the crowd is seen in that they only seem interested in jesus the healer it's another form of rejection Jesus was rejected by the leaders, by the crowd, but most painfully of all, by his own family. Look at verse 20. Then Jesus entered the house and and again a large crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Even his own family were struggling at this point in their lives to come to terms with Jesus. Jesus. It sounds almost humorous mothers are always obsessed uh, with their children eating properly go and get him i'm worried about my boy he's not eating properly but it's far more serious than that isn't it look at verse 21 they, they want to seize him they want to take control of him they want to bring him home because they think he's he's got a mental disorder how painful it must have been to be so misunderstood by your own mother and brothers You know, and if we misunderstand Jesus, we will never properly relate to him. So who do you think Jesus is? If you've been watching for a number of weeks now, I think it's important that you try and articulate what you think. Um, This is the question that Mark wants us to be considering, because who you think he is will affect your response to him. The big twist, of course, is we're going to see in a moment that your judgment of Jesus is actually a judgment upon yourself. It's a bit like standing in front of a classic painting by one of the world's greatest artists. Do you know, for example, that the Scottish National Gallery here in Edinburgh has an original Leonardo da Vinci? There are only about 20 of his paintings in the world, and we've got one, and you can see it for free normally. So let's say you're standing in front of that da Vinci or in front of a Rembrandt, one of the classics, and you say out loud, that's not very good. I mean, he's just splashing paint on the canvas. Anybody can do that your judgment of it really is a judgment about you (laughs) it says much more about you than the painting the value of the painting is not in doubt jesus is rejected by the leaders by the crowd and by his own family but the most significant thing to see in our text today is to see the response of jesus to all this rejection and my second point today is to show you how jesus calls new leaders a new crowd and a new family. You see, the rejection uh, does not stop Jesus from building his kingdom. Look at the way that Mark puts his material together. In chapter 3, verse 6, the the Pharisees and the Herodians plot how to destroy Jesus. 3, verse 7, Jesus withdraws from them. It's a sobering moment. It's a powerful statement. Those who continue to Reject Jesus, face the possibility that Jesus will no longer make himself known to them. Jesus withdrew is a warning to proud, stubborn people. We can't presume that God will keep giving us second chances forever. We can't presume on his kindness. Jesus withdrew from them and he calls new leaders. Verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. I think the setting and the number are highly significant. A key moment in Israel's national history was the moment God brought a slave nation, 12 tribes, out of Egypt and brought them to the mountain of Sinai. And there God commissioned them as a special people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, who would enter into a covenant relationship with him. This is one of the most significant moments in Old Testament history. God said to them, out of all the nations of the world, you're a special people, you're the people of God. Here's the people of God, Israel's leadership, and they reject Jesus. What does Jesus do? He goes up a mountain and he calls 12 men to himself. This will be the new Israel the new people of God. The the leaders reject Jesus and so Jesus rejects them and he calls new leaders to lead God's people, the apostles, who are the foundation of the church. Jesus chose them to to be with him, to watch his life, to, to hear his teaching and then to go for Jesus, preaching the gospel and having the same authority to oppose evil spiritual forces. What I think is so encouraging is to look at the unlikely people he chose. Jesus seems to have a focus on the family. It looks like there are three sets of brothers, with James, son of Alphaeus, probably the, the brother of Levi that we read about earlier. A diverse bunch of people. It, it included a former collaborator of Rome and a nationalist. Amazing to get them together. People who could get really emotional. James and John, given the nicknames, uh, sons of thunder. Well, you can imagine how they got that. And these were not the most gifted intellectual people, they were ordinary working people, fishermen. God always seems to delight in picking ordinary people, those who others think are insignificant to achieve his purposes. He'd call sinful men to be with him and to go for him, men who argue about who's the greatest and some who deny and even some who betray. How amazing and encouraging it is that God and his sovereign purposes is still calling people today like that, people like us. And against this backdrop of rejection and blindness, it's wonderful to see that Jesus takes the initiative to call people to himself. This is sovereign grace. And we see that continuing in verse 20 as Jesus calls a new crowd to become a followers of him. Look at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered. Now from the context, it seems quite a different Crowd to the one that mark mentioned earlier the first crowd was threatening to crush him but look at verse 32 they they were sitting around him it was an ordered group here's a group of people who haven't gathered just to jesus the healer but they've come to sit at his feet and learn from him as he teaches i mean this is the pattern that we'll see as we read through mark jesus does teach the crowds in parables out there but inside he privately teaches his disciples and the new crowd explain to them the meaning. They're the insiders, while the outsiders get parables. What's painfully shocking as we read the account, though, is to notice who is on the outside. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers, standing outside, they said someone to call him. Jesus' family think that they have a special call on his life. They're on the outside sending a message to call Jesus to come to them so they can seize him and take him home. But the message gets to Jesus. Verse 32, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And then we get these stunning words from Jesus. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And he looked at those seated around him in the circle in the room and says, here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, my mother. Jesus is calling a new family. Here is what makes someone, uh, here's what marks someone who is in the kingdom of God a crowd of lifelong learners at the feet of Jesus with him at the center. People mark my humility, willing to listen to his word to be marked by a kind of a joyful obedience to doing the will of God in relationship with God, brought about by a relationship with Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As we talked about earlier in the interview, the wonderful thing is it's a multi-ethnic, multi-skin-coloured family. Uh, He may call us as individuals, but we we don't stay as individuals. We we become part of this family made of different ethnic groups, of different uh, languages and people. Now there's a great encouragement to those who I think experience rejection from their physical families because of following Christ to know that there is a real church family that wants to love and care for them and support them as Christ followers and this is a warning I think to those who idolize their own biological family to make church um, optional for their children to be flaky in their own commitments to church uh, and fail to make Christ's family their priorities. I mean my parents didn't really present going to church as an option and I saw my father's commitment to being an elder and my mum's commitment to showing hospitality and consequently all three of the brothers have grown up with a high commitment to the place of the local church And, and actually we've all ended up being pastors in the end. I want to point out one more thing that Jesus says here that is quite challenging and confronting. Did you notice that he speaks of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan you're either in one or the other according to Jesus how do you know which one you're in well what's your attitude to Jesus and his teaching to God's word disinterested don't get it just see it as boring and dry and irrelevant well then the devil has got you exactly where he wants you what's the attitude to Jesus and his family Is church just boring to be avoided at all costs? Don't know why people want to get excited about it. Then I would suggest the devil has you exactly where he wants you. Let me ask you again. Who do you think Jesus is? Just a healer? Just a moral teacher? Was he mad? Was he evil? Or is he God? Come in human flesh. God's king bringing in an eternal kingdom. Who do you think Jesus is? How do you actually treat Jesus in your life? Is he the main character in the biography of your life? Or is he just a footnote? Or would he not actually even appear in the index at the end of the book? Because he doesn't get mentioned. Our judgment on Jesus shows us whether we are the possession of Jesus Christ or the possession of Satan. And if you're under the dominion of Satan, what can we do about this? Well, the answer is nothing. You can do nothing. He's so strong and clever that most people are unaware that there is is laboratory rats. Our only hope is in verse 27. It's a little parable that Jesus tells as he refutes the scribes from Jerusalem. This is what they should have worked out as they saw his healing and deliverance ministry no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up then he can plunder the strong man's house the strong man here is the devil satan and the only way that you can take a strong man's possessions is by being stronger able to bind up the strong man then you can take his possessions and wear his possessions How is it that Christ could command people with unclean spirits to be silent and they obeyed? How how could he command evil spirits to leave those who were tormenting these people? Only by being more powerful than Satan. He is the only one who can rescue us from the kingdom of Satan and bring us into his kingdom, the kingdom of God. Through his sin-bearing death on the cross, he conquered Satan and he can free us from our slavery to Satan by removing the guilt of our sin. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 28. It's so encouraging. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. What an amazing promise. All their sins. This would be well worth memorising, wouldn't it? All their sins and every slander, every blasphemy they utter can be forgiven. The only sin that cannot be forgiven is is the persistent rejection of Jesus. I think that's what verse 29 means. When the scribes attribute the work of Satan to the work of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus, well, they're rejecting the only hope of forgiveness and freedom from the realm of Satan. You see, if you reject the only specialist surgeon who can remove your tumour because you believe him to be a kind of a butcher who just wants to kill you, then you're only left with your terminal cancer. To reject the only source of blessing in life is to to leave you only with the judgment of death. So what do you think? Is Jesus mad, bad or God? Is he just a healer, just a teacher or is he the only rescuer, the only saviour? Have you repented and believed the good news about Jesus so that you can say, He is my rescuer. I am his possession. I belong in his kingdom, in his family. And if you've not done that, why not turn to him today?